This is the Social Distance Podcast, and today I'm speaking with Sarah Studeville. Sarah is a journalist, she's a columnist, she's an educator, and she's based in the city of Seattle, in the state of Washington, in the Pacific Northwest, the United States of America. So we initially were chatting back and forth on email about uh, your piece in the South Seattle Emerald called Disaster Progressivism, Having the Guts to Imagine More. Why do recent glimmers of hope, in speech marks, have me feeling extra hopeless? And it seemed to kind of put into words uh, a a sort of uneasiness that I'd been feeling myself. But um, I feel like we should begin with chatting about how things are in Seattle at the minute and your perspective on events there over the past few days. Does that sound okay? Absolutely, yeah. And I don't think that those things are, I think those things are connected. So, yeah. Well, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so as a former resident of Seattle and someone who's now thousands of miles away, what I, what I, what I see is a, is a series of protests and an extraordinary reaction by the Seattle Police Department in terms of, the number of police officers who were out on the street, the militarized nature of the response and the use of violence by the police, which, I mean, take it from there because that's what I see. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty good summary. I mean, I would add to that list also um, that now we're under curfew for the third day in a row. Um, We had a 6 p.m. curfew tonight. It was 5 p.m. curfews the two nights before. Um, in an attempt to, uh, the mayor's attempt, Jenny Durkin's attempt, to keep people from going to the protests. We haven't seen that work. Um, People are turning out tonight, for example, in the thousands, from what I can tell, uh, violating that curfew to continue to protest. And what that has effectively done is to criminalize all of those people for being out past curfew um, and having them criminalized in this way and interacting with the Seattle police force, which has already been using um, really violent force against protesters, I think uh, has really aggravated tensions in a number of ways. Um, So it's a pretty volatile situation here right now. Um, I went down to the protests on Saturday. It was Saturday during the day and the afternoon. Um, And, you know, kind of a typical scene. It's something that I've seen before with the SPD and protests here where you'll have folks who are largely protesting in like a pretty peaceful manner um, or being disruptive in exactly the way that protests are intended to be disruptive. Um, And then, you know, the only thing I saw was that a plastic water bottle got thrown at the police. Um, I didn't even see who did it. And then, of course, that's used as an opportunity to have a huge response. And then um, the flashbang grenades got started um, and they brought in cops in full riot gear, um, which of course, again, escalates things immediately um, and escalates tensions immediately. And things just kind of disintegrated from there. Um, so yeah, that's that's the report from Seattle, at least in the last 72 hours, as far as I've uh, been able to follow it. Right. So I should say we're speaking, um, as, we're, as we're chatting now, it's Tuesday, June the 2nd in Melbourne, and it's eight o'clock on Monday, June the 1st. In That's right. Mm-hmm. right. So we're 
two hours into uh, curfew on the third night here. Yeah. Right. I guess I, I, I'm tempted to get into the unpicking the actions of, of Jenny Durkin because she was elected as mayor, um, what is it, two years ago? Yes, it's 2020. Yeah, that would have been two years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and she came with a very sort of establishment profile, I guess, a, a democratic establishment profile, I would say, in terms of political parties. Like, But the way that this has played out and the way that the Seattle Police Department has been permitted to act the way that it has is just, I find it um, perhaps not surprising, but I don't know, profoundly disheartening. I don't know. That's a really pale, lily-livered way of putting it. It's fucked up. It's just it's so fucked up. fucked up. It's fucked up. It's not surprising to me at all. Um, as I mentioned in, I think, the article, um, Disaster Progressivism, my first experience with the SPD as a protester was in 1999 during the WTO protests that turned yeah. to riots. Um, I was 19 years old at the time and um, really had a profound political awakening through that experience. And um, Mayor Paul Schell at the time behaved in just this way. The SPD behaved in just this way. Uh, and we just kind of see this repeated over and over again. And then I think you add on top of that, you know, there are these additional layers um, of the fact that now we're talking about protesting police violence and brutality specifically against black people, um, which adds to the tension and the possibility for um, violence because of the racism that's endemic in the SPD. And, and it's worth mentioning that that's not, um, that's just not just my opinion, but in fact, we've had to be um, investigated by the federal government because it was proven that there's biased policing in the SPD. And then on top of that, you have this layer of the pandemic um, and all of the tensions surrounding that. Um, so it really does feel... I mean, tense doesn't even feel like the right word. Yeah, I think fucked up really captures it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and with regards to Seattle Police Department, I should say that they're they're operating currently under the the tail end of what's called a consent decree. For those who aren't familiar with it, which is a which is a, a sort of oversight system, which came in the wake of a of a series of. Um, investigations and a series of murders of people of color over, I, I guess, a period of years, right? Absolutely. And then, of course, that was uh, only just that was reported, especially in the wake of a kind of like rise of um, consciousness around this issue for white Americans and white Seattleites. But this has been the case um, for the SPD. Yeah. For generations, right? So, so, so in terms of white Seattleites, what what I, what I'm wondering about is, um, what's your sense of the white Seattleites' reaction? Because I, I I I'm wondering where are the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who came to the women's march, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think again, um, I'm I'm struggling to kind of get my hands around it too, because we have these added layers of the pandemic, right? Um, And this idea that that it is inherently dangerous to come out and protest and expose yourself to um, COVID-19. Additionally, these curfews, the shelter in place orders. So there's a lot of um, things that's difficult to control for when you're asking like, you know, where are the tens of thousands of people? Um, But 
I, you know, and like in the wake of that, I think it's important to say that the protests have been um, powerful and numerous. And mm-hmm. my sense from what I can tell is that the numbers actually seem to be growing with each day that passes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think you're dead on to ask about white Seattleites response to this. Um, I think there's and, this you know, age. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, sorry, go on. I don't want to interrupt you, please. Well, I, I just wanted to say there's this kind of, uh, at least in the course of my lifetime, every single time there's protests that turn to property destruction, there immediately there's this kind of like bright dividing line um, among Seattle progressives. And I think it's safe to say, at least insofar as um, I'm familiar with this argument, white Seattle progressives, which is, you know, property destruction and writing is violence. Uh, and that distracts from the essential good message of the good protesters, right? Um, and then the people who say this is a legitimate form of expression, of political expression, it's necessary, it's savvy, because let's be honest, the media wouldn't be paying attention to this in the way that it is if it weren't for the violence. White America pays attention to violence. Um, at the same time, that violence does potentially compromise the message and does potentially make things more dangerous, especially for people of color uh, and black and brown people who are protesting. So you have kind of a lot of troubling, true things happening at once. Um, I think it's worth saying that pretty consistently, and and you'll remember Nikita Oliver was the progressive candidate in the race, the mayoral race that you mentioned, where Durkin won two years ago. Uh, Nikita Oliver has been spot on with this from the very beginning, just reminding us again and again that dividing protesters into good and bad protesters is an age old tactic in trying to convince people essentially to stay home um, or to behave or to uh, not protest in a way that is actually challenging. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I'm I'm going to hold my hands up here, right, as well. So I'm not... Um... I'm not freeing myself from my own responsibility for my own passivity in the face of the rise of Trumpism. And, you know, I went on a few marches, but, um, you know, there, there was, there's an inertia in, in me as a privileged white person with progressive ideals living in Seattle, as I was at the time, that I'm kind of wrestling with at the minute. And um, I think it's important to, for me to just hold my hands up and admit to that, cop to that. Um, yeah. So uh, um, <laughs> I, I don't know where to go with this conversation because there are parts of it that um, I, I, I don't know where to go. Well, I, I think that, you know, before <laughs> let's not move on from that that point, because I actually think that I didn't directly respond to your question, which was, are you sensing white reluctance to engage with these protests um, or to engage with them passionately among white progressive Seattleites? And I think the answer to that is yes. Um, I think, you know, something like the Women's March, and I in no way would intend to disparage it. I marched in, I believe, every single Women's March uh, (laughs) that happened. Um, But, you know, that was a much less threatening message to white progressives than getting out there and fighting against... um, institutionalized racism, racist institutions, and frankly, racism inside white culture, inside progressive Seattle. I mean, that is in a very uncomfortable space for white progressives and one that I've 
I've That's seen exactly. us actively ignore and avoid for as long as we possibly can. And my hope is that this is a moment uh, that forces us to no longer ignore it. That is exactly that is exactly right, and I and I feel like that what you've just said that that racism within the culture that I belong to or belonged to when I was living there is is part of what's causing that knot of anxiety and I don't know kind of pointless white guilt in me. Mm. You know what I mean? I would I absolutely know what you mean, and I would argue white guilt is not pointless. <laughs> well, <it's... laughs> um, I. <laughs> I, I think that it's part of actually examining what it feels like to start dismantling the the white supremacist messages that we've been indoctrinated with our entire lives. I mean, uh, shame and guilt that for sure. No, absolutely, and 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 I didn't mean that it it couldn't be um, weaponized, <laughs> right? Um, I guess um, I was more thinking about it in terms of when when it when all it leads to is a greater feeling of passivity and and paralysis then and avoidance then it's right hopeless. because and avoidance, it doesn't yeah. it feels like absolutely it feels horrible. <laughs> um, so lest I lest I continue my white liberal hand wringing here um, <laughs> in your piece, disaster progressivism. First of all, the coining of that phrase is just so useful. It seems seemingly so simple, but so it's such a useful, valuable inversion of the disaster capitalism notion. So, Thank you. I actually congratulations am like desperately Googling it. I'm like, did I coin it? I don't know. <laughs> you can claim it until somebody else tells you otherwise. All right, right? there you go. That's what we'll do. <laughs> um, but w one of the key overarching ideas in there is about the post-COVID-19 moment, whatever that means. I mean, we're not we're still in it. But mm -hmm. the idea that there's going to be some new configuration that starts to take shape and that now is the time when you should have the courage to voice the most visionary ideas for what that new future is going to look like. Right. And in there, absolutely key in there are reparations, abolishing the police, having constructive, creative ways of reimagining what policing looks like. OK, so I think also key in there is me saying I... I open by saying I'm not an expert on economics. I'm not an expert on criminal justice reform. I'm not an expert on, you know, the best way to um, implement or roll out reparations. And I think it's important to say that because that idea that you have to be an expert to weigh in or to be invested in creative solutions or building new systems is one of the things that holds us back. Right. And it's um, such a it's such a convenient um, shutdown mechanism for exactly. the opposition to say, well, well, how are you going to do that? Well, just because you don't have the actual plan laid out in front of you doesn't invalidate the creative idea. Right. And to say, I want to have a serious conversation about this, like to come to come at that by saying, well, if you don't have a fully baked, vetted plan for how you're going to dismantle the current, you know, racist police state, uh, then no, we can't have a conversation about it. It's completely dishonest. Um, and it is intended to shut down creative and, and um, I think, revolutionary thinking, basically. Um, and I've been talking about this with, you know, people, it's so interesting in a moment like this, you know, it's a huge political moment locally and nationally. And under non-pandemic circumstances, you'd be going to school, you'd be going to work, you'd be interacting with uh, your family and with all of these people and having conversations about this moment. And we're not doing that, right? We're all sitting at home 
you know, having these conversations with whoever else is kind of in our pandemic bubble and then looking <laughs> obsessively at the internet. And it creates this like strange feeling of like, it's all sort of happening right here. And also it's hard to feel like you're fully a part of what's happening, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, what I was going to say is, you know, people have been asking, like, I think we're seeing that this is a system that and I think this is from the article. We are not going to be able to tinker racism out of this system. We're not going to be able to just adjust it um, or reform it. We really have to talk about building new systems. And I think um, that really starts with talking to the communities that are the most impacted about what kind of uh, community centered uh, justice or policing or restorative justice uh, would work best for them. And I think that that is also when we think about creative solutions and thinking about big, bold, progressive ideas, it may well be that it's not about some huge um, one size fits all answer, but it's about finding ways to center impacted communities so they can build systems that work best for them. Um, and that again is just kind of me trying to think uh, outside of this, outside of the kind of boxes, I guess, that we typically think in when we when we think about big scale change. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it's it's important to to recognize one of the points that you made in an earlier in an earlier piece, which is that the 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 systems that we're talking about aren't broken; they're doing exactly what they were designed to do. Right. Um, they're functioning very effectively. Right. And that, I mean, again, I think this is a this is a big leap that a lot of white progressive Americans need to make. It shouldn't be a big leap, but I think it is for many of us. Racism is not a side project of the project of the United States. Racism is the foundation that the project of the United States was built on. So right. this this idea that we could just if we could just address racism and then get back to the business of the United States is is really wrongheaded. Um, and I think there's a lot of resistance among white progressives to think about it in those terms. But I think we absolutely have to. Well, there's hundreds of years of myth making that, that have to be countered. Right. And that's not easy to do. Um, but if there was ever a moment to do it. <laughs> well, fuck, if you're not going to do it now, I mean. Um, right. And I think like it is worth saying that we have watched and, and I'm speaking now to, you know, more privileged parts of our society for whom like uh, and I think this is a, from the piece too. like we're still kind of trying to thread the needle of a disintegrating system because we think we might, you know, slip in under the wire of total disaster and make out OK. Um, I think for those of us with with some of that privilege, uh, the last three months of seeing our systems and our government and all of the people who were supposed to be able to protect us in the face of disaster uh, fail to do so also is deeply impacting how we see this moment as we consider the possibility that these institutions are flawed at their very core. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a had another follow on thought there, but I'm sorry, it just ran out of my head. This is why I don't do live radio because I'm really shit. <laughs> I'm really shit at it. <laughs> I think you're doing great. Ah, <laughs> uh, um, uh, oh, fuck. What was I going to say? I, and whose I'm... brain is not feeling that way right now? Like, I don't. I, everybody, I think, feels a little brain broken right now. Oh, I know what I was going to say. What I was going to say was that um, 
Uh, yesterday, I don't know if you caught this, but yesterday Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister of Australia, was asked about the death of George Floyd and he said, oh, it was terrible, it's a terrible thing to to see. He said something weird like he does because he's a weird dude. And then he said, you know, but it just made me think, what a great country Australia is. <laughs> oh, interesting. Because <laughs> as, as we all know, Australia has uh, no race-related issues and there's no history of uh, racial subjugation or violence at all. So, you know, How nice there you for go. you all. I know. <laughs> so, um, so, so that, that, that goes to something that's pretty interesting. In, in my experience as somebody who lived in the States and, and pretty much loved it when I was there, was that I have found myself often defending the United States to Australians and thinking about how the moments of reckoning come in a society. And this, what's happening in the States is one moment of many. And the idea that, that, that Australia is just going to keep cruising along you know, as the COVID-19 emergency disappears in the rearview mirror that we'll just go back to the way things were in January and we'll be able to ignore everything, you know? I'd... And I'm, I have a, oh yeah, please, no, finish your thought. No, go on, I, there is no thought. I'm just, uh, that's fucked up too. <laughs> yeah, and I think, so th this is super interesting to me and I, I'd love to hear um, how this is feeling in Australia. Is is that what people want? Because I feel like what has happened with a lot of folks that I know is there's almost a sense that we've gone too far to go back. Um, well, that now the things that we've seen exposed, the loss of 100,000 people and counting, the, the total pandemonium, um, and then also, of course, the, in, the inequities that have been just laid so starkly bare to us, that... I'm beginning to wonder, like, and I think many of us are, can you go back from that? It, it sounds like in Australia, the sense is that you, you can. Well, I think if you have, um, so in Australia, we have a, a right-wing government who are Trumpian in their sympathies, but they're less chaotic, I would say. So that in its way brings its own set of problems because they're sufficiently skilled at massaging messages and making radical policies seem like just business as usual you know what i mean right. so they more palatable so the, yeah the classic example is is what's happening as we speak the federal government's response to coming out of the covid-19 crisis is to deregulate to slash red tape to build greater infrastructure for petrochemical industries to reduce workers rights to reduce public sector pay so there, so the, it's it's a Trojan horse in a way. It's it's the ideal vehicle for introducing things that would have been a bit more tricky, you know, three months ago. Is the um, sense that do Australians feel like the government has handled the um, pandemic well, the crisis un well? Unfortunately, yes. And I mm -hmm. say that because I think that it's been more through luck than judgment <laughs> that that it happened the way that it has happened, and there's been maybe just over a hundred deaths. I see. And, yeah. and a good chunk of those came from um, one series of incidents involving a cruise ship in mm. in Sydney. So now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, I'm not diminishing any of those and I'm not um, I'm not wishing that things have been worse. So I don't want that to be um, I don't want to make it sound like that's what I'm wishing for. But but I do think that um, I don't know 
how many Australians want things to go back and how many of them are thinking, oh, wait a minute, this has been a great opportunity for me to actually reassess the life that I've been living and the life that we're living as a society. Mm-hmm. Given that we've just come out of the, cat- catastrophe, the catastrophes of the bushfires mm, right, as well. Course. So you go bushfires, COVID-19, yeah. um, both pretty, pretty massive um, opportunities for reassessing where we're at. And it's so interesting. I mean, like, I appreciate, Dominic, you just kind of naming the thing that is here between us in this conversation, which is these types of disasters do potentially offer opportunity for a kind of awakening, uh, for a a reassessment, um, and for a deep reevaluation. And and you see that happening in the wake of um, previous pandemics or wars or crises, right? Um, and that doesn't mean that you're like wishing for these things to happen. Um, but there's something about this moment too, because we, we all knew we were already in crisis. We have the climate crisis is looming, um, the rise of these kind of authoritarian, uh, leaders around the world, the increased, I mean, certainly just like the increasing intensity around issues like, um, racist policing, for example. So, we were, it wasn't like we were in a calm moment and then plunged into chaos. We were already in a chaotic moment and the volume has gotten turned way, way up on it. Um, so and what, I guess, what am I, I guess saying that's, with that? Yeah. Well, I, I guess that's pretty, much, um, that's pretty much the experience of communities of color in the United States, I would have thought, which is uh, um, things are already this fucked, you know? Yes. Yes, and and I think that is absolutely true. And I want I need to be mindful when I'm talking about this. Is like, um, for some of us, maybe the last three months have um, have served as an opportunity to really see some of the the true horror of the political um, and social moment that we're living in. For a lot of people, it's no surprise at all. Um, I think. You know, it is worth saying, though, that if nothing else, there's this kind of, and and I think you could probably speak to this from your experience here in the United States, even if you're very, very skeptical of the United States, its politics, its histories, um, there is a kind of like, I guess you'd call it jingoism, right? Or a kind of patriotic pride that at the very least, you know, we pay these super heavy prices, but we have some of the best research in the world. We have some of the best innovation in the world. We have some of the most sophisticated, you know, kind of like fill in the blank um, science and culture, and right? Uh, and I do think that for many, many people, the assumption was that the United States of all countries would know how to address a medical crisis like this, you know, would have the infrastructure in place and have the... Um, the expertise and the resources necessary. And for that not to be the case, I know for a couple of people that I've been talking to, it's like, well, then what are we paying this very, very high price for in these other areas? Do, do you think that um, out, outside the um, progressive uh, movement, and so, I mean, like you were asking me how Australians feel, and I, I have such a small circle of people here that I, I can't really see what sense mm-hmm. I'm getting, but... Um, do you feel like enough people see this as an existential moment, not just um, post-COVID, not just because of these um, 
social justice related issues and um, law and order related issues. Sorry, I don't know how that's not the phrase I wanted to use. Sorry. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> so um, because of social justice, police brutality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, do you have a sense that, that people, enough people now see this as an existential crisis for the United States when you have Donald Trump standing outside a church brandishing a Bible on on ground where people have literally been tear gassed away from so he can do that? With every day that passes, I feel more and more confident that more and more people are seeing it as an existential crisis. Um, I mean, it, my my sense of that has changed even over the course of today. Uh, you know, it, it, you mentioning Donald Trump with the Bible, having tear gassed all these people, saying that if governors don't dominate the protesters in their states, he's going to send the military in to do it for them. Um, I, I can't imagine a more desperate or threatening moment for our democracy. Um, and I think at this point, even just based on some of the um, less politically engaged and even maybe um, more conservative people I know on social media, there is real alarm. Um, it's hard to look at this moment and not be alarmed on an existential level in this country, I think. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you for your constructive thinking and thank you for your understanding of my um, messy way of trying to figure my way through this as I'm watching it from a distance. Um, oh, I, I love it. And I love, I mean, it is messy, right? Even just in this conversation, we've talked about how multiple conflicting things are true at once. And we're experiencing all of these kind of like a, a wash of feelings at the same time. It's inherently messy. And I also think that speaks to the opportunity of the moment, right? Is that we can stop, this gets us back to the very beginning of the conversation when I was saying, you know, everyone tells you if you're not an expert and you don't have an already vetted plan, you don't get to weigh in on real powerful and impactful change. Um, but I think really powerful, impactful change is messy and it is muddy. And that's actually where the courage comes in is the willingness to, to wade through that. Uh, not as an expert, but as someone who is just going to be really fully present and fully taking responsibility for this moment, which <laughs> you're definitely doing, Dominic Black. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I wanted to ask you one other thing, Sarah, which was um, you mentioned your own political awakening at the WTO mm -hmm. uh, protests in, um, was it 1999? 1999, yeah. 1999. So... What 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 was that awakening? I mean, what what crystallized for you there? You know, um, I was 19 years old, and I had always been interested in politics and writing and history and uh, kind of historical moments. I, if I were being completely honest, the first thing that drew me to those protests was that. It seemed dramatic and it seemed exciting and it seemed like the opportunity to be in the middle of something that was really happening. Um, it also didn't hurt that, uh, you know, there was like, I think, um, a cute socialist guy at Seattle Central that <laughs> was organizing <laughs> people. Um, anyway, but but what happened, you know, so that's where why I kind of first showed up, I think it was out of curiosity and, and a general sense of adventure and interest. Um, and then 
what was revealed to me over the course of this really like intense month here in Seattle um, was just this idea of how everything that we did in our lives was connected, right? That, that we did nothing that wasn't of consequence, whether it was, and at that time, anti-globalization was very much focused on um, issues of more international justice and was seen as kind of neoliberal um, mm. trade policies and um, unfair labor practices overseas. And I think ultimately that was um, that was the failure and to the detriment of that movement that we, especially because so many of us were white middle class kids, couldn't see that we had to address these kinds of inequities and these sorts of injustices and this kind of oppression inside our own communities and and inside our own systems um, before we could effectively build a movement uh, that could be global. Um, Mm -hmm. So anyway, but it was still very exciting, this idea that, yeah, it matters what kind of sneakers you buy because there's someone making those sneakers and that material comes from somewhere and that impacts all of us, right? And um, these kinds of policies that are uh, sort of presented as like inevitable or uh, too complex for you to understand that in fact, you can understand them at their very core of how just or unjust they are. Um, it made, it made. I think it. that's the impression it made on me was that the choices that we make matter, um, that all of these systems were connected and so us getting in there and agitating those systems could have really large ripple effects out from there. Um, and then, of course, I got my ass beat by the SPD. So that made a big impression, too. <laughs> the first day I was down there, they uh, shot us with rubber bullets and and I got tear gassed. And, um, you know, the combination of that fear and that inspiration collided in my 19-year-old mind and soul. And it definitely changed me forever. What What was... What was it like being tear gassed? Uh, it was super painful. You know, I was thinking about that because when we were down there on Saturday, I could just tell. I was like, first it's the concussion grenades or the flashbang grenades, uh, and then it's pepper spray, and then it's tear gas. You just know it's coming, right? And I was definitely scared to get tear gassed again. Um, it was, I mean, it's just overwhelming burning pain and choking. I remember being pulled into an alleyway. And there were, like you're seeing now, uh, in images of the protests coming out of Seattle and other parts of the country, there are these like medics that come and they wash your face with milk to try and deactivate the chemicals in the mm-hmm. um, in the pepper spray or the tear gas. Uh, and I don't, I don't remember it feeling like it worked, but um, I do remember the incredible care and how uh, amazing it was that there were people there that were there to help us in that moment. And it was really moving to see that happening again uh, in the streets of Seattle on Saturday. Do you know, um, uh, sorry. Um, fuck. Uh, so, sorry, I just started crying okay. there. That's all right. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I, I've been crying on and off all week. Oh my god, I totally wasn't expecting that. You know what? Um, I was speaking to a guy the other day from uh, the north of Ireland, and he was talking about growing up in Northern Ireland, where where we did as, um, and I grew up in a pretty sheltered part of Northern Ireland. But when I think about you as a youngster, and I think about the images that I've seen coming out the last couple of days um, from Seattle. And then I think about 
my own very limited experience of being in a society where you are part of a, a segment of the population that is considered problematic, right? Now, I'm not comparing the situation of Northern Irish Catholics to African Americans or communities of color in the States at all in that regard, but except for the fact that I have I have kind of buried a lot of the feelings that I've had about that experience. And sometimes it just comes up as it did there when you were talking and I thought about um yeah, that um that experience and your experience as a as a as a young kid. And I, I guess the the sense of like that the forces that are there supposedly to protect you and to to protect your rights within society are actually turned against you, you know, and uh, yeah. Um, to to go back to an earlier point in our conversation, that's fucked up. It's fucked up. It's fucked up. And I think once that you know that's an experience that um, I had, I got to choose right. I got yep. to choose to have Absolutely. that experience. Absolutely. Lots of people don't, right? They they have that experience based on who they are. Um, and it happens to them all the time and there's no choice in it. And to think that just me being able to opt into it had this impact on me um, to never really trust that those systems won't turn on you at a moment's notice. Now imagine if you just systematically, and it sounds like you have some of this experience, personal lived experience, uh, have that just happen to you over and over and over and over again. And you watch everyone that you love have that experience over and over and over again. How, how are you supposed to react to that system? And I think this comes back to this idea of good protesters and bad protesters in this moment. What would you have people who have had that experience their entire lives? What would you have them do, right? What is good protesting in the face of that experience um, and that reality? Um, yeah. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat with me, Sarah. I really enjoyed it, Dominic. I really appreciate you inviting me to do this. Um, I would love it if we could reconnect. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Um, I really, it actually has been really helpful for me to talk about this with you. Again, when like you're living these moments, you don't always stop and actually just talk about what it feels like in the moment. <laughs> so thank you, thank you. Sarah Studeville, who's a journalist and an educator based in Seattle, Washington, the United States of America, my old home city. We spoke on Tuesday, June the 2nd, 2020 Melbourne time, Monday, June the 1st, 2020 Seattle time.